We're going to start today in uh, Psalm 51, but uh, what we're going to do is we're continuing our series. So this is the third. It was supposed to be three and four. Uh, this sermon was supposed to be numbers three and four of our series, Gospel Psalms. And what we're doing is we're telling the gospel story uh, by reading a bunch of different psalms. And uh, so if you remember, though, I got the flu a couple weeks ago and just didn't show up, you know, so uh, Terrence filled in for me at the last minute. Uh, so what we had to do was we had to squish these two into one sermon. So let me just give you a quick recap of where we've been. Um, we started the series by talking about uh, what is the gospel. And what I said was that there's four movements to sort of the gospel story as you read the Bible. So the first movement of the gospel story is talking about um, creation and how just God created the world and the universe, he created Adam and Eve, and he put them in the garden, and they had this wonderfully perfect relationship with him, and uh, they were in fellowship with him, and he was their Lord, and they were his people. And then what they decided to do was the second movement of the gospel story, which was they decided to break everything. So thanks a lot, Adam and Eve, for nothing. When I get to heaven, that's the first thing I'm going to say to those two, is thanks for nothing. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) But they decided, you know what? God has told us not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, but we're going to do it anyway because we know what's best for our life better than what God knows for our life. So basically what they said was we are now going to be the lords of our own life. We don't need him to be the Lord. And so what we said and we talked about sin last week was that sin has absolutely destroyed this world. And what we see around us is not the world the way that it's supposed to be. We have broken relationship with God. We have broken relationships with one another. We have broken relationships with the world around us, right? The world is fallen and broken. And then we also have broken relationships with ourselves. Our bodies are, are fallen apart and people are sick and death was introduced into the world. And so what we talked about was that as followers of Jesus, we need to be absolutely brokenhearted over sin. We can't just brush it off and pretend like it's not a big deal, right? And what I said was we talked about Jesus and the story of Lazarus. And uh, he shows up and he says, they say, Lazarus, the, uh, you know, your buddy is dead. And he goes, oh, that's okay. I'm going to bring him back to life. And then he actually goes up to the tomb. And when he gets up to the tomb, we have the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. But why did he weep if he knew he was about to bring Lazarus back from the dead? The reason was because he was standing Uh, in front of what sin has done to this world. People are not supposed to die. We're not supposed to have funerals. We're not supposed to get sick. We're not supposed to live in a world like this. We're not built for this. And so as Jesus faced with uh, sin just in his face, he broke down and he wept because, uh, because because of how awful sin is. And so what we said was that's the attitude that as his followers we need to have towards sin. We need to be brokenhearted about the sin in our own lives, the sin in other people's lives. We need to care about it. So um, we read last week um, uh, from the New City Catechism. And as we were talking about sin, what we said was this. Uh, It says, will God allow our disobedience and our idolatry to go unpunished? And then the answer to that is no. Every sin is against the sovereignty, holiness, and the goodness of God and against his righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in his just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. Okay, so what this catechism question is saying... Oh, wait, by the way, can I pause real quick and pretend like I didn't already start the sermon? Um, if you follow the QR code uh, in, the, in the bulletin again, and you're following along in the Version Bible app, what it's going to do, it's going to take you to a new page. It's the Porch Sunday page. 
This is kind of a sneak. Did it work? Yeah, yeah. So it'll take you to the, the Porch Sunday page. At the very top of that, there's a link that you can click to get to your Bible app. But in that, if you want to look at that later on, porchsf.com slash Sunday, that's kind of what our Sundays are going to look like. So that's sort of a sneak peek at the new website. All right, back to the sermon. Pretend I didn't say all that. Okay, so what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, Jesus and stuff. Um, so what, uh, what God is going to do is it says he's going to punish every sin, and he's perfectly righteous in doing so because our sin demands judgment from a perfectly just God. So do you see the predicament that we're in? Do you see the problem? And this is what we said last week. We just left it there. We just said, this is the problem. And next week we'll talk about how to fix it. Is that we have told God as a, as a people that we don't need you to be our Lord. And that's what we've decided. And we don't want to have a relationship with you. And we want to go to war with you. And we want to be in rebellion to your authority. So we have spit in the face of God Almighty, the perfect creator that we talked about in that first week. And so now the relationship that we have with God is not like the relationship that Adam and Eve had in Eden. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is right after, I think it's right after the sin. It says that the, the Lord God, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right. So God shows up and he was just there to hang out with Adam and Eve and spend some time. And, you know, I don't know what they were talking about, how cool the trees are or whatever. But he was there and they were they were in this perfect relationship. And now that relationship is broken. And so something has to be done. Right. His justice demands punishment. We are all just absolutely covered in sin. We're ruined by it. We are slaves to sin. And so unless something changes, we are all doomed to face the wrath of God Almighty. And that is the absolute most terrifying thing that can happen to anybody, uh, any, any one of uh, us you know, uh, humans, is to face the wrath of God Almighty. And so what we're going to talk about today is how does God fix this problem? What did he do? So, so far in the first two movements of the gospel, we've gotten to Genesis 3. <laughs> Right, so Genesis 1 and 2 was movement 1. Genesis 3 was movement 2. So now here we are, Genesis 4, right? We're, we're starting. So most of the Bible covers this third movement of the gospel that we call redemption. So we're going to start, though, by reading a psalm of David. It's Psalm 51, maybe my favorite psalm. I don't know. There's a lot of pretty good psalms out there. Uh, but here's the backstory to this. Let me give you the historical situation, what's going on here. King David... Uh, the man after God's own heart, right? He's the guy that we all teach our children you should grow up and be like. And we have flannel graphs of him in Sunday school. Well, let me tell you about King David. One day he was uh, uh, looking out his window and he was perving on some lady across the street who was taking a bath. And he sees this naked lady and he goes, hey, I like that naked lady. So he sends some soldiers over to go bring her over to him. They spend the night together. Um, so he's the original Harvey Weinstein kind of. And... Uh, she gets pregnant, and so he tries to cover it up. And what he does is um, he, her husband was away at war, so he brings the husband back from war on a special mission, thinking he'll spend the night with his wife. Everybody will just think it's his baby. We're in the clear. But it, the husband was a, a, a really good guy, and he sleeps on the stairs outside of David's house because what he says is, I'm on, still on duty. I'm on a mission. Uh, but while all my buddies are away at war, I'm not going to be at home with my wife. I'm still at war. I'm just back for a night or two. So David gets mad and sends him back and tries, comes up with another plan. So he sends a message to the commander and he says, hey, put the husband, his name is Uriah, put the husband out in the front lines. And then when, when the battle starts, everybody else run away and leave the husband to be killed by the enemy. And that's what they do. So David steals this guy's wife, gets her pregnant, tries to cover it up and then murders him. Right. Nice guy. 
So then the prophet Nathan comes along and he says to David, hey, I've got a, you know, you're the judge of all the land of Israel. I've got a problem. Can you, you know, be the judge? And the guy says, yeah. He's like, there's these two dudes. One of them's rich, has all these sheep and lambs and everything. This other guy's poor. He just has this one lamb and uh, he, it's like a pet more than food, right? And so the rich guy had some friends over for dinner, but he didn't want to kill one of his lambs. So he went to his neighbor's house, stole the dude's lamb, the poor guy's only lamb, slaughtered it, had it for dinner. Uh, what do you think we should do with this guy? And David goes into a rage. We should execute him, right? Let's chop his dome off. And he gets all mad. And then Nathan goes, hey, moron, I'm talking about you. And then all of a sudden, David realized what he's done. He's stolen that guy's wife. He's murdered him. And all of a sudden, this flood of sin comes, um, the flood of the weight of his sin comes across David. He repents of what he did. And then he writes Psalm 51 about this situation, right? So this is like some heavy stuff. We're not talking about, oh, uh, I cheated on my taxes, which is sinful and it's bad. Or, oh, I told a lie to somebody, uh, which is sinful and it's bad. What are we talking about here? We are talking about adultery and we are talking about murder. And we're talking about lying and trying to cover it up as uh, the king of Israel, who is supposed to be God's appointed representative to the people. And so here's David's heart as he repents. And as we read this, what we're going to see is some stuff about the Redeemer. So this is what he says. Um, verses, uh, we'll start in one and two. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So do you see the key words here? The first key word is where he, t- he says, uh, have mercy on me. Uh, according to your steadfast love is maybe the most important word in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And what it means is we always see it in the ESV as steadfast love. It means God's covenant love. So what it means, uh, because I am one of your people, you love me. And you're keeping this deal that you've made with us as a people, right? The Israelite people. But look at some of these other words. He says, have mercy on me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Here's the thing. As you look at all of this stuff, do you notice what David is not saying? He's not saying, oh, Lord, I need to cleanse myself. He's not saying, oh, Lord, I need to go and I need to wash myself. He's saying, Lord, you have to cleanse me. You have to wash me. You have to have mercy on me. He knows, standing in front of his adultery and murder and lying and covering it up, that there is absolutely no way that he can fix this sin problem. I mean, this is a godly man who had already written a ton of psalms up to this point when he commits this sin. So he knows, even in a godly person, how deep the root of this sin is. And here's the thing. This is the difference between Christianity and basically every other religion in the entire world. Because every other religion in the entire world says, here's what you have to do to fix whatever is the problem. Some of them have different problems. Like take Islam, for example. Islam literally says that... In your life, you're going to do some good stuff and you're going to do some bad stuff. And it actually doesn't even matter whether you're a Muslim or not. Being a Muslim is one of the good things that you can do. But at the end of your life, you're going to go to heaven and God's going to get the little scale out. He's going to drop an M&M on all the good side for every good thing you did and one on the bad side for every bad thing that you did. And whichever side is heavier, that's where you go, heaven or hell. That is a terrifying thought. You know why? Because I know how deep the sin is in my life and my heart. And I know... That weight is not even going to be close, right? It's going to, here's the sin side, here's the good side. We're going to start dropping M&Ms, and Pastor John's side is going to go clunk, right? That's not good news. And that's basically how every religion in the world works, is here's what you need to do. 
right? In Buddhism, it's meditation, and here's how you empty yourself. And, and, you know, anyway, in all these religions, it's you have to do something. You have to do something. You have to do something. And then the refreshingness of Christianity comes along, and it says, here's what's been done for you. That's it. That's the religion. That's the difference. Is every other religion is based on works, and Christianity is based on the gospel of grace. Is here is what's been done for you because you are so terrible that you cannot fix this on your own. And then everything else in the religion happens after that point, right? But the starting point is you can't do any of this by yourself. But let's keep reading. So we'll get more into the details of how that works. But uh, verse 3, for I know my transgression and my sin uh, is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth um, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So now he says, my sin is ever before me. David is overwhelmed by the weight of his sin, like we've been talking about. And then look at verse 4, where he says, against you and you only have I sinned. You see, here's the thing. All sin is against God. Every sin is against God. Let, let's... On, on the ultimate level, right? Let's take it, the example of David's adultery, right? Uh, on, when, you're, when you commit adultery, there's levels to what you're doing that's wrong. So first is the person, you are sinning against the person that you are cheating with by saying, I'm going to use your body for my own personal pleasure outside of the bonds of marriage the way that God has created. The second thing you're doing is you're saying, I'm sinning against my spouse because what uh, this person is not giving me what I need or whatever, and so I'm going to go find that somewhere else, again, outside of this covenant that I have entered into, this covenant of marriage. Um, then you're sinning against, let's say you have kids, right? Adultery leads to divorce and all sorts of stuff that affects kids, and there's a wider community that your adultery is sinning against. Oops, don't knock your computer over, huh? Um, the wider community that you're sinning against, but ultimately your sin is against God because what you're saying is in this moment, this momentary pleasure is worth rebellion against the God who created me, against the God who created the universe. And what you're saying is, I know that my plan in this moment is better than your plan to bring me ultimate joy. And like I said, you're spitting in the face of God Almighty. And so why do we do that? Why do we do this? Why do we do things we know are wrong? Paul says this, right? He's like, this is the apostle Paul basically says, I can't stop doing all these things that I hate. Right? I want to do these things and I love these things, but for some reason I keep doing these things that I hate. Why? Look at verse 5. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. What he means by that is not my mother sinned in conceiving me, but from the time of conception, David is saying, I was born a sinner. Right? Our sin is, um, uh, we call it the sin nature. Right? We don't, I've said this before, we don't, uh, we're not born pure. And then the first time we sin, we become sinners, right? We're born wretched, fallen sinners because we're children of Adam and Eve. And then sinning is the overflow of the nature that lives deep within us. And that's what David really understands. And then he continues in verse 7. So what do you do, right? Verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So there's a reference here. What he's doing, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us as we read this. What's hip, hyssop? Why are we breaking bones? All of this stuff taken together is referencing the Old Testament sacrificial system. What David is saying is, what I need here is something to die in my place. I need someone to atone for my sin. 
and he talks about, um, and in this system, the idea is that you can read all about this if you read the book of Leviticus. If you're in a Bible reading plan for the whole year, I don't know if anybody's doing that. You'll probably be getting to Leviticus pretty soon here. But the whole thing is take the blood and sprinkle it here, and that's how you slit the throat of these lambs, and it's pretty brutal stuff because blood represents life, right? Blood is the life that flows through our veins, and that God demands that life to atone for sin. And so David, what he says is, I'm going to run to this system that at his time is what God had set up to atone for sin. He says, I need God to let me use this sacrifice to pay the price for this sin. Then he continues verses uh, 9 through 12. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold, uh, uphold me with a willing spirit. So this is what he says. I need a clean heart. Right? I need God to erase my sin from the record. I need to be in the presence of his Holy Spirit. I need to take joy in my salvation. And then I need a new spirit that will follow after God instead of constantly following after sin. Now look at that. That's a tall order. This is the stuff that David says, I need to be made clean. And this is where we're going to stop in Psalm 51. If you want to flip over real fast to Psalm 22, we're going to continue. Because here's the thing. Right? Like I said, that's a tall order. So here's God's plan. Here's what God says. This is how we're going to do this. Um, I'll read to you again from the New City Catechism, right? Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? The answer is yes. To satisfy his justice, God himself, out of mercy, reconciles us to himself and delivers us from sin and from the punishment for sin by a redeemer. So this is what God has decided to do. I'm going to send a redeemer. And let me show you just real fast, and then we'll get into Psalm 22, the beginning of how this happened. Um, in Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So after the fall, at the and this is Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have fallen. And God shows up, and first uh, he curses, I forget the order, he curses, is it Adam, then Eve, uh, then the serpent, I think. I don't know. I don't remember the order. But uh, when he gets to the serpent, right, he's cursing the serpent. And this is what he says. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So uh, we call this the proto-euangelion. Everybody has to remember that or you're not a real Christian, right? Uh, just kidding. Uh, that just means that the first gospel. This is the first instance of the gospel. So right after humanity fell, God comes along and he says, don't worry, guys, I have a plan. And he says to the serpent, uh, there's going to come from the seed of Eve, which is uh, kind of a weird phrase anyway. But from, from Eve is going to come this, this righteous king or whatever. And this king is going gonna, is gonna to kill the serpent. But at the same time, the serpent is going to bite him in the heel. And there's going to be sort of this mutual destruction. But ultimately, this is how the serpent will fall. And so right away, we have to start asking as we read the Old Testament, who is this guy? Right? If you didn't know the story of Christianity and you were just reading straight through, you'd open up to Genesis 4. And you'd go, I wonder if it's Cain or Abel. Right? And then all of a sudden, what happens? Right? Abel's a pretty good dude. His brother kills him. And then Cain gets cursed. And you're like, well, okay, it's not those guys. And then you go, you keep reading, and you think, well, maybe it's Abraham. God comes along and tells Abraham, 
But it's not him either, right? He, he's terrible in, in some ways. But then God says to him, even though you're terrible, what we're going to do is I promise that this king that we've promised is going to come from your family line, Abraham. So you're like, great. And then this miracle kid comes along, Isaac. He kind of stinks. It's not him. And then he has some kids, Jacob and Esau. Maybe it's Esau. Maybe it's, no, it's none of them. Is it Joseph maybe? No. And as you keep reading, you're thinking, man, who is it? Uh, and then we find out from the line of Judah, uh, that this king is going to come. And so we jumped the story. The, uh, you know, we read about it's not Moses. He's not from the line of Judah. It's not uh, maybe Samuel, the miracle birth. No. And so the first king in the line of Judah that we read about is David. Right. Is he the sinless one who's going to kill the serpent and take the, the sin away? And you say, no. Right. We just read about it. We just talked about David. He's clearly not the guy. But what God comes along, he says to David, now I'm going to narrow the promise even more. So first it starts with Eve. Then it goes uh, to Abraham, then it goes to Judah, and now to the line of David. So a king from the line of David is going to be the redeemer that I've promised, that is <clears throat> going to kill this serpent and destroy sin. And then we start reading about his sons, his first son, uh, you know, rapes his sister and then gets murdered over it by his brother. And you're thinking, this is the family, right? That's going to, you know, and then we read about Solomon. And you think, well, maybe he seems like a pretty wise and good dude. Then Solomon had 900 wives and whatever, and they all pulled him away from the Lord. Well, maybe it's probably not Solomon. And we keep reading, and there's some terrible kings in that line. There's some okay kings. We read about Hezekiah or Josiah. Is it any of these guys? And the answer is, as we read the Old Testament continually, it's not this guy. It's not this guy. It's not this guy. But here's the thing. These kings mess up the story so bad that the people of Israel are wiped away and taken into exile. But during this entire time, these prophets keep showing up. Hey, guys, guess what? The king is coming. Guys, guess what? The king is coming. Isaiah shows up. The king is coming, right? Ezekiel. Later on, dudes, I'm telling you, this king is coming. And everybody's like, I've met these kings. These are not the guys. These are not the redeemers. And then the Old Testament closes with the promise that... Uh, right before the king comes, another dude's going to come and is going to announce that this king is here. And then the Old Testament closes and 400 years goes by. And then we open up the New Testament and we read about a guy. And we're going to read about this in Luke, but uh, when we start Luke up the street. But we read about this guy, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes along. And, uh, you know, he's got this miracle birth story and Jesus is born. And then as, as grown-ups, one day John's out there and he's screaming at people and wearing his loincloth and, uh, you know, he's eating his locusts and whatnot, being all crazy and uh, <laughs> a crazy Old Testament prophet. And Jesus comes along and John shouts to the crowd, hey, everybody, look, it's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Right. John comes and he says, everybody, that's the guy. This is the guy that we have been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. And so we read the story of Jesus and what happens. Well, we'll look at this in Psalm 22. This is, so that's the who, but now how? How does Jesus become the redeemer? And this is what we're going to, or, you know, how does he redeem his people? This is what we're going to talk about as we read the whole book of Luke together. Uh, but look at this, Psalm 22. The, uh, there are layers of interpretation as we read these psalms. So at the top layer, we're reading about David, who's going through some sort of trouble, and he's calling out to God about it. The middle layer is we can read that and identify with that when we go through trouble. But at the ultimate layer, what's going on here is uh, Jesus went through ultimate suffering in the crucifixion and in facing the wrath of God. And so you might recognize this psalm, right? This is how Jesus becomes the redeemer. This is how he redeems his people. 
uh, redeems his people. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Okay, so here's the thing. Jesus was so soaked in scripture. One of my favorite stories, and I can't wait to teach this, is when Jesus, the boy Jesus, is sitting at the temple. He ran away from his parents, and he's answering questions with the the teachers of the law. And they're like, man, this kid is smart. The idea is Jesus, and it says he grew in stature and whatever. I forget the exact verse, you know, but he grew up and he learned the Bible the same way that we learn the Bible. He wasn't born knowing the entire scriptures by heart. But here's the thing. As a human, Jesus was so soaked in scripture that at the moment of his death on the cross— Crying out in agony, this is what he calls out. He quotes the Bible. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He calls this out from the cross. And the reason was because he was ultimately forsaken by God. You see, we've talked about the dance of the Trinity before. This is one of the most important theological ideas that we have uh, as believers. Here's what's going on. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we call it the dance of the Trinity because what we mean by that is those three in one being are constantly serving and deferring to the other two. There's this beautiful dance of service and love, and they take joy in one another. And the idea behind creation, by the way, is that they created us and invited us into that dance. Not to be God, but to participate in the joy that happens within the Godhead. And since eternity passed, these three have been operating like this until the moment of the cross. Where God separated Jesus from the dance of the Trinity, the Father, and then poured out his wrath on top of him. And in that moment, see, I say this a lot, crucifixion stinks. I mean, it's why we have the word excruciating. It means from the cross. This is one of the worst ways that you could die is crucifixion. And that's terrible. But in comparison to what Jesus experienced facing the wrath of God and being separated from the Father that he has been in perfect communion with since eternity past was infinitely worse. And so from the cross, Jesus cries out in his agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he continues. He says, you are holy, uh, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and, del- and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. So now we're reading about Jesus as uh, the sufferer, though he is part of the covenant people of God. So this person who's going to come and suffer, and we know this is Jesus, is a perfect representative of the people of God. So where they failed, he succeeded on their behalf. Um, and now... What's happening on the cross is he's now switching places with them. We call it the great exchange. Verse 6, he says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. So the Redeemer is made low. He's like a worm. Think of that just for a second. Think of Jesus, the creator, on the cross. The guy who created trees, the guy who created people now, is being nailed to a tree by the people that he created. That is absolutely insane when you think about it. It is so mind-boggling. And here's the thing, though. What we know is that Jesus could have walked off the cross at any moment. He says that. He's like, I can call down legions of angels anytime I want, but I'm going to do this anyway. Why? Um, Oh, I don't have a slide for this. Let me read to you from Hebrews. It says this in Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So like I said, he could have walked away, but he stood there, nailed to the cross, and faced the wrath of God because he knew that this was going to lead to 
to more joy for him and to more joy for us, right? Because he takes joy in our redemption. That's the depth of his love for his people, is that he endured this awful uh, death. Verse 7, he continues, All those who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So we know that this is exactly what happened to Jesus. He was mocked, first by the people uh, at his trial with the Sanhedrin. One of the craziest stories in the Bible is a guy's blindfold, God Almighty, and then they punch him in the face and they say, ha ha, prophesy who beat you. And the ironic part is he knew exactly who beat him, probably. You know, and I don't know if that person ended up being a believer, but if they didn't, one day they're kneeling before God Almighty that they blindfolded and punched in the face. It's absolutely crazy how they mocked Jesus. And then they nailed him to the cross, and the onlookers stood there. And they said, oh, look at this guy. He claimed to save everybody else, can't even save himself. Right? They're making fun of God Almighty as he's dying in their place. And then we even have the one thief. Right? The guy that makes fun of Jesus, we'll read about that in Luke. Right? The one thief who calls out and mocks Jesus. Right? And so what we'll do now, we'll skip down to verse 12. Uh, we'll skip a few verses here. Um, it says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a, um, a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is uh, melted within my breast. So this is like the imagery here is being torn apart by animals. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. His body was completely, it was torn apart. He's thirsty, just like we read about Jesus on the cross. He's completely out of strength. Uh, oh, wait, I have more verses here. Sorry, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to read all the way to 16. It says, my strength is dried up uh, like a pot. I didn't read this out loud before I read it in front of all you guys. How do you say that? Pot shard? What is it? Shard. There you go. Pot shard. There you go. Uh, and uh, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. So he's thirsty, and then it even says here, they've pierced my hands and feet. Now, in Hebrew, that's a little more fuzzy. It means like they've mangled up and, you know, pierced is one translation. They mangled up my hands is kind of a way to say that in Hebrew. And so we Christians, we say, yeah, that probably means pierced is one of the ways that you could translate that. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus. Nailed to the cross, mocked, completely out of strength, and slowly he died uh, uh, probably of something like heart failure. Verse 17, I count all my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, this is exactly what that happened to Jesus. They took his clothes off, which was a common practice, by the way, in the ancient world. Uh, it was, Jesus wasn't the first person they ever did this to. When they would execute somebody, they would take clothes were very valuable. They didn't have Old Navy where you could buy a sweater for $3 on sale or whatever. Uh, you know, clothes were very expensive. So before they'd kill somebody, they'd take his clothes. And then they would gamble to see who gets, which one of the executioners gets the clothes. And that's what happened to Jesus. And then verse 19, uh, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Uh, oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So on the one level here, David now is crying out. And what David says is, oh, Lord, thank you because you have rescued me. But here's the thing. Jesus, who faced all that stuff on the cross, he also cried out to God. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's calling out to God, his father. And you know what? Unlike David, Jesus did not receive a reply. Jesus received wrath and punishment. The wrath and punishment that all of us 
uh, his people deserve was poured out onto him. And so where David cried out and his cry was answered, Jesus cried out and was crushed by the Father. But here's the thing. That's not the end of the story, right? Jesus was put in the ground and then uh, he was resurrected on the third day. You see, God put the wrath of God on him and then Jesus' body was put into the ground. But as proof uh, that he was this redeemer, God brought him back to life. And that's why all of a sudden, we have this, this psalm is so weird if you don't have a Christian story. Because here's what happens next is, you know, you've, you've rescued me, blah, blah, blah. And then we're talking about all of this. Oh, wait, I don't have a slide for this. All of this crushing stuff. And if you look in your Bible at the rest of this psalm, what happens is the whole tone of the psalm, the whole tone of the psalm shifts to this kingly language. All of a sudden, now the Redeemer is praising God. And he talks about how there'll be in God's kingdom, there'll be no more poor and needy and everyone will worship this king. And we read about Jesus is the, uh, how he is the king in a, in a full sense. And that's the key. This is the key to the, the kingdom of heaven is sure that when we get into eternity, it'll be paradise. You know, and if your grandma was a believer, grandma will be there, right? And it'll be the world the way that it was supposed to be. And we'll talk about this in a sec. But here's the biggest piece is that Jesus is going to reign as the king over his people. He will be the Lord the way that it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. It'll be like I say the Garden of Eden on steroids. This world will be so much better than the way that it is now. And so what we'll do to end is we're going to jump over. We're going to read Psalm 24. This is a picture. So we've covered redemption. This is how Jesus redeems his people is he lived the perfect life that we could never live in our place. He was born without a sin nature because he was born of the Virgin Mary. And then he lived that life. And then he died the death that we were supposed to die and face the wrath of God. And then he he gives us credit for his life. And he takes the credit for, you know, and how we were supposed to die. And he does this grand switch. So we get credit for his righteousness. And then he comes back to life. He takes off into heaven where he is ruling and reigning now. But eventually, here's the thing. Eventually, he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to bring his kingdom to this world. And heaven is going to come to earth and he's going to recreate heaven and earth. And Psalm 24 is sort of a picture of what that might look like. Uh, Verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand uh, in the holy place? So the new heavens and earth are under the reign of God, including all of his people who will be there. And then he continues. He who has a clean hands and pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And so now sin will be wiped out. We have these clean hands. We live in a world now with stained, dirty hands and disgusting, sinful hearts. And we're going to get to heaven. We're going to have clean hands and pure hearts. Imagine just for a second the weight of sin being completely lifted off of your soul. That's what I'm looking forward to, right? Sure, heaven will be great. I can ride my motorcycle and crash without worrying about if I'm going to mangle my foot again or whatever. You know, that, there, there'd be a lot of other wonderful stuff. Food is going to taste better than it's ever tasted before. Uh, you know, but ultimately, man, we're going to be there and God is going to be reigning. And that weight of sin is going to be lifted off of our souls. So seven, they praise God, right? Lift up. 
uh, your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, the strong and mighty. The Lord is mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory, oh wait, didn't I just read it? Yeah, uh, may come in. Uh, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory, Selah. So this is what's happening here, is this is how the people respond to the king. They just bust out in worship, and they bust out in praise. And this is what we're going to do forever, because we are going to live in a perfect world, a way better Eden. And so that right there is the four movements of the gospel. I wish I had more time to talk about this last one, right? I wanted to do a whole sermon on what the new heavens and earth will be like. Uh, We'll get to that someday. But that's the four movements of the gospel. We have creation and perfection. Then we have sin and brokenness because we uh, spit in God's face and decided that he didn't get to be our king anymore. And so what he does is he fixes the problem by sending his redeemer, Jesus. God becomes a man. Uh, lives a life we could never live, dies in our place and switches places with us. And then we have restoration or consummation where Jesus gathers his people into a recreated heaven and earth for all of eternity where he will reign over his people as king. And so the point of all of this is to say that right now we live kind of in between those two movements after the restoration, but before the, the sorry, after the redemption, but before the restoration. And theologians, we call this the already, but not yet. We've had a taste of the kingdom of God, but we haven't seen the full kingdom of God. And what's happening right now is we live in a world, the Bible, we've talked about this a lot. The Bible calls the world Babylon. There's a system of evil and injustice and oppression that's all around us constantly as God's people. And it, it takes different names, right? It was Babylon, it was Greece, it was Rome. Uh, it would, you know, sometimes it's America. We've talked about that. And this system says is... Um, opposed to the things of God. And sometimes right now it can be very hard to be followers of Jesus. And so what do we do in the already but not yet? We live with, we look to the already and we ground ourselves in what Jesus has already done and we have hope for what he has not yet done. And so we are the kind of people who look forward to the the new heaven and earth and where Jesus will reign and sin will be wiped out. And we look forward to that and it affects the way that we live in the here and now. Everything about the way that you make decisions in the here and now, it can tell me whether or not you really believe that you're headed into this wonderful eternity with God Almighty. And so what we're going to do to close is I'm going to read to you from a children's book because it's awesome. Uh, There's a children's Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, I don't think I put a slide in here for this. No, I didn't. Um, Yeah, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I meant to grab one on my way out of the house. I have like a million of these, but I didn't. But I have the text here in my notes. Um, <clears throat> I think I put it in the thing if you want to follow along. But this Bible is phenomenal. Okay, so it's written by a lady named Sally Lloyd-Jones. And I'm not kidding when I say this. Everybody who's an adult should read this Bible. Okay? Because there is – okay, I went to seminary, and I'm a dork. So I read like a lot of dorky theological books, heavy, weighty stuff. And there's this one branch of theology we call biblical theology. And what that means is not just – theology from the Bible. It, it means like storyline theology. How does these threads, how does this theme flow through the whole story you know, of the Bible? What's the flow of the Bible? Not just picking things from different parts. How does it move across the Bible? And you can take different themes. The main theme of the Bible obviously is redemption. And if you take the theme of redemption and you talk about the biblical theology of redemption, nobody has ever written anything better than the Jesus Storybook Bible, including all the academic works and all this fancy stuff that's written for pastors and even for adults, 
Uh, this lady somehow managed to write maybe the best Christian book besides the Bible of all time, right? She calls it the Jesus Storybook Bible. So I want to read to you the last chapter from the Jesus Storybook Bible. So pretend like uh, you're my daughter Izzy and you're going to bed and I'm going to read to you. That's what we do. We read the Jesus Storybook Bible. Okay. Um, so the last chapter is called A Dream of Heaven. Uh, John sees into the future and it's from Revelation. She's kind of paraphrasing Revelation 1, 5, uh, and then 21 and 22. So this is what it says. John was one of Jesus's helpers. He was old now and living on an island, which might sound nice, except that it was a prison. The leaders put him there to stop him from talking about Jesus. But I'm sure you don't think a little thing like being in a cell in a prison on an island in the middle of the ocean could stop God's plan, do you? One morning, Jesus appeared right there in John's cell. Jesus's eyes were bright and he was shining like the sun. I'm going to show you a secret, John, Jesus said, about when I come back. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Write down what you see so that children can read it and wait with happy excitement. Then Jesus gave John a beautiful dream, except John was wide awake and what he saw was real and would one day all come true. And this is the dream. He says, I see a throne and on that throne is a king and that king is Jesus. And all around the throne, people are bowing down and they're giving him all of their treasures. There are loud cheers and clapping, clapping and bright laughter like a thousand waterfalls and everyone bursts out singing a new song. This is our king, the lamb who died so that we don't have to, our rescuer, all honor and glory forever and ever. And every creature everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea joins in. And then from all around a wide, immense, beautiful silence. And I see Satan, God's horrible enemy, thrown down and defeated. I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, and coming down from heaven. And from the sky, heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz and jasper, sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearly gates that can never be locked shut. Where is the sun? Where is the moon? They're They're not needed anymore. God is all the light that people need. No more darkness, no more night. And the king says, look. And his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying because all of those things are gone. Yes, they are gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky said, Look, I am making everything new. It was hard to squeeze all John saw into words and to fit in a page and cram it into a book. And all the words of the pages and all the books and all the world would never be enough. I am the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. And one day John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true and perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going um, to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew that the ending of the story was going to be so great that it would make all sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is being chased away by the morning sun. I am on my way, Jesus says. I will be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end because, of course, that's how stories finish. And this one is not over yet. So instead, he just wrote, 
Come quickly, Jesus, which is perhaps, uh, which perhaps is really just another way of saying to be continued. That's pretty cool, right? All right, let's pray. That's how we'll end this series.